0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Goods, of film podcast, hosted by Brian, which is me, and Dan. You out there, Dan? I am Brian. How's it going? Hey, good. Good to talk to you as always. Glad we got our crop of listeners
1: joining us, too. Chugga-chugga.
0: Yes, and yet another installment of Train Month. Now... This is my second pick of the month, probably the last one I'm going to get before we move on to something else, but we'll have to see when the episode comes to a close what lies ahead. The movie that I have picked for us to talk about this time is Thomas the Tank Engine's theatrical debut. It's the feature that was made of the franchise back in 2000, entitled Thomas and the Magic Railroad. So did you get a chance to watch this one, Dan?
1: I did. I got a lot of
0: questions. I don't necessarily have answers.
1: That's all right. I did I did watch it, though. This
0: was written and directed by Britt Allcroft, who was also the producer of the Thomas TV series Thomas and Friends, which was the British original, and Shining Time Station, which was the repackaged, Americanized version. And we're going to be digging into the lore and history of the Thomas franchise a little more as we go along here today. I feel like someday we got to do like a Greta Gerwig movie or even like Catherine Bigelow, Ava DuVernay, something like that. Because so far the movies that we've covered that have female directors are like Care Bears movie <laughs> and Thomas and the Magic Railroad. So it's not <laughs> the best track record.
1: Yeah, that's true. Is Women's Appreciation Month, is that February or March? One of them is Black History Month, and one of them is Women History Month, or something like that.
0: Yeah, well, Black History Month is definitely February, so we'll have to see. I feel like they wouldn't make them overlap.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be a little too tokenized. Ghettoized, yeah. <laughs> Put them all together. No. Minority Month. <laughs>
0: <laughs> New theme month. <laughs> no. No. Uh, we got to dig into this, uh, loath as we might be to do so. It, it was, it was an interesting experience. And the train topic I wanted to discuss this week that kind of ties in with all this is the phenomenon of rail fans. That's what the Wikipedia article calls them: enthusiasts of railroads and railroad culture who don't work with them in a professional capacity. And I've noticed that people who are into trains dan tend to be really into trains. Is that something you've noticed?
1: Interesting. I don't really know of too many people who are into trains, so I can't really I can't really speak to it, but it does Yeah, like I guess uh, you know, I've been to places where they have model train sets set up. And they're, like, extremely elaborate. And there's, like, the super intense guys who maintain it, who are, like, fixing up the fake shrubbery or making sure that the rail is just so straight. And I guess, yeah, it's, like, a uh, a thing you can, like, fixate on and, like, get just right.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think fixate is the right word. And, I mean, s- some, like, big, impressive things can grow out of a rail fan's addiction. I mean, Walt Disney was super into model railroading, and you can kind of thank that hobby for the growth of Disneyland. Hmm. But... I don't know. This is obviously a generalization, but it seems like people who are very, very into Thomas the Tank Engine specifically, there's, like, a large component of that who are maybe autistic. Interesting, yeah. And if this... Like, if you're really, really into Thomas and this podcast is how you find out, sorry about that.
1: (laughs) Self-diagnosis, listening to this podcast. It's like that old YouTube clip where the guy says, am I retarded? And then he turns and looks in the mirror. And then the person in the mirror is like someone with Down syndrome or something like
0: that. (laughs) Have you ever seen that clip? I've not seen that one. We'll have to drop it in the Discord. But... Yeah, far be it from me to criticize someone for experiencing arrested development, seeing as I've assigned whole episodes recently to Sesame Street specials. (laughs) But you just got to have a little introspection, I think, when it comes to Thomas the Tank Engine. And that's what we aim to provide. One other thing I wanted to mention uh, related to very dedicated railroad aficionados. There was this game on Steam. It's probably still up, but it had like hundreds and hundreds of DLC packets that you could get. And it was this Railroad Simulator. And I wanted to do a little bit of research and come to the podcast ready with a title, but I looked up Railroad Simulator on Steam. There's actually a ton of them. But whatever this one was, it had like the whole world's train systems mapped into the game. And you could just like realistically drive any train on any track in the world there in your steam simulator.
1: That's interesting. I know that there is like whole universes of those kinds of simulators. There's like plane simulators, the same concept you can do any plane flying anywhere in the world. So yeah, I, I remember seeing those and thinking, you know what, if that scratches your itch, there are more harmful things you could be obsessive about.
0: Yeah. It's kind of neat. I did, I did, Uh, kind of a deep dive into Microsoft Flight Simulator, the 2020 version recently. And yeah, they got the whole world in there. It's nuts. I I imagine what'll happen in like 10 or 15 years when you can, you know, take that level of thoroughness and then apply, you know, like sandbox gameplay to it.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Have like an entire world's worth of like Grand Theft Auto or something.
1: Grand Theft's plane. I don't know what the... What do you call that? <laughs> I think they call that a hijacking Dan. <laughs> yeah. I
0: wanted to talk a little bit about the history of this Thomas franchise and the stories that take place on the Isle of Sodor. So, Dan, had you had
1: much previous exposure
0: to Thomas?
1: So I definitely watched it a little bit when I was a kid. Um, I have vague memories of... Watching the TV show, it's probably uh, the the famous one, The Shining Time. Is that what it's called?
0: Yeah, that was my exposure growing up. Like some of my earliest TV memories are watching Shining Time Station, which was the uh, American version.
1: And then I have a couple of books that I would buy just boxes of used books at thrift stores and stuff for my daughters and came into a couple of Thomas the Tank Engine books. And I want to share my thoughts on a couple of them when, when we get down there, because me, one of them in particular has become an in-joke between me and my wife.
0: All right. I'm excited to hear about it. Well, listeners, if you didn't know, this series had its roots way earlier than I ever thought. It actually began in 1945 with books by British author Wilbert Audrey. Now, he was a reverend and a rail fan. And he wrote these stories with anthropomorphized trains. The first book was titled The Three Engines, and it revolved around the trains Edward, Gordon, and Henry. Thomas didn't actually show up until the second book, entitled Thomas the Tank Engine, the next year. So, 1946. Hmm. Interesting.
1: So, it's like uh, like Curious George, where... There's a first book, and I guess it's not exactly the same, because George still appears in that, but it's not like a George-centric book. But then he got like, a, he became the focus with the second book, and then the entire subsequent series was framed around Curious George.
0: Yeah, that appears to be the case. Something I found interesting reading about this is that apparently Audrey really emphasized realism in his stories. Like a lot of the events were drawn from real happenings on the railroad. And like a lot of locations are stand-ins for real world locations. And apparently he had like ongoing disputes with his illustrators that they weren't drawing the trains realistically enough. (laughs) And it's like, dude, they're talking trains. They're (laughs) trains with human faces on the front. How realistic is that? But, you
1: know, train fans, they like the nitty gritty. So that had me thinking, Brian, about the whole like uh, style of media that's vehicles that have faces and personalities. And if you had any other examples of that that came to mind, I mean, the obvious one is the Cars franchise by Pixar, which really is the one that first got me thinking about just the ludicrousness of. A personality being in a vehicle and like what that suggests about, I would say the human condition, but in this case, it's the vehicle condition and like the life cycle of of one of these things. Right. How do they come into the world and how do they leave the world? Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's actually a great question, because the original Henry story about Henry the engine is the one that I remember from the TV show where He goes into a tunnel because I think he doesn't want to be out in the rain or something. And they're like, well, if you're not going to drive on the rails, we really have no use for you, Henry. And they block him up in the tunnel, build it over with bricks like the cask of Amontillado. Oh, my gosh. And a train, a sentient train is not going to just die. I don't
1: think they need to eat. So he's just going to be (laughs) entombed there forever. Wow. It's very bleak. That that is interesting, yeah. And the opening of this movie, some of the characters talk about somebody says, I'm gonna destroy you and people are like, What? Destroy? And I thought that this was gonna like deal directly with the concept of trains no longer having sentience in a soul, like what happens if a train dies or something. But it didn't go that route. Oh man.
0: I wish. Yeah,
1: that would have that would have been interesting. The door does seem open to that in this story, honestly. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, there's a couple of threads that might be it might be able to take there. But the other one that for me, that's vehicles that come to life is uh, the putt-putt games. Did you ever play the putt-putt games as a kid? Oh, man, we should like review the putt-putt franchise at some point. I've played them with my daughters and they really like it. And it's fun. It's like cars before cars, you know? Those are great games. I mean, there's the Putt Putts, there's
0: the Freddy the Fish, and then aimed at a slightly older demographic, they did a couple games called Spy Fox.
1: Yeah, so that's the age it goes up. It's like Putt Putt is basically toddler level, like first grade level. Freddy the Fish, you're getting to like middle grade, and then Spy Fox is almost like middle school, you know? Right, and lots of pop culture references in Spy Fox. Right. Speaking of Steam,
0: you can get the whole huge entertainment package as a bundle on Steam, and I have done just that. Yeah, yeah, humongous entertainment. Humongous. I knew it was something like that. Yeah. Glad we're on the same page when it comes to humongous entertainment. (laughs) I actually read that during the production of the Thomas TV shows, they did a season of something called Tugs, which I've never seen that, but I do remember Theodore Tugboat, which was very similar, and apparently some of the thomas people like splintered off there was like a schism and they made theodore tugboat
1: interesting when you said tugs it made me think of like that would be the name of a pornography magazine for trains it's like tugs instead of jugs or something like that anyways this is getting weird <laughs> yeah sorry that's okay Th- that's what thomas the tank engine will do to you
0: <laughs> yeah Man. Up in gold dust. We're just at the very tip of the iceberg here. We got to keep moving along. But these books in the post war era had success. These Wilbert Audrey train stories. Part of this was because they were published in full color, whereas more books of the series tended to be austere. You know, they were coming out of the rationing of Britain in World War Two, And. It was, like, immodest to have so much color in a children's book. But, hey, they won the war. They could do these types of things now. And the Isle of Sodor is the location that Thomas and his friends live. It's based on the Isle of Man, which is a British isle. And the source of the name is because the bishop in man, or on the Isle of Man. His bishopric is the bishopric of Sodor and Man. Hmm.
1: I don't know what any of that means. Yeah.
0: There is no island called Sodor. Apparently it refers to the Suddries, which I guess are several like tiny, maybe uninhabited islands. Britishisms are hard for Americans to parse, but just know there's not... Another equivalently sized island to man, but that's the idea. Wilbert Audrey went to man and he thought, wouldn't it be funny if there was an island that was this same size called Sodor? And that was his jumping off point. He drew all these detailed maps of all the railway lines on Sodor and over the years came up with who are the trains that take the different routes. And between 1945 and 1972, Audrey wrote 26 books in this series, after which it was taken over by his son, Christopher Audrey. And reading about this, it had me thinking, what is it with British authors writing stories for sons named Christopher? Because you got Christopher Tolkien, you got Christopher Robin Milne.
1: Yeah, I looked it up and... Christopher was not among the top 10 names in England in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, or 1940s. So it's not like a case of Michael's in the 1990s, where that was like the most popular name. And there was like four kids named Michael in every class I was in. It's just a weird coincidence. It's yeah. Like a Christopher singularity. People who gravitate
0: towards writing books also gravitate towards having Christophers.
1: I guess so. It's like, if your middle initials are RR, you damn well better write a fantasy epic.
0: (laughs) And these books by Wilbert Audrey, they would reference developments in the British railway systems. So something that we see reflected in this movie is during the 1960s, the British railroads underwent some modernization, which entailed closing a lot of small, more local branches of the railroad and also something called dieselization so they started replacing all the old steam engines with diesel powered trains and this just made audrey see red
1: (laughs) he didn't like diesel
0: yeah and so diesels are a recurring antagonist in the series and that's in this movie as well
1: They're not the true, pure train, I guess. (laughs) It's not the way it should be done. I want to talk about the villains in a bit. I know we'll get to the movie. We, We will. We'll get there. It
0: got to the point that these books were popular, they had an enduring fan base, and people started wanting to do adaptations of the series. I was surprised to learn that Andrew Lloyd Webber, the Broadway producer was really into the Thomas books and wanted to make a Thomas musical. Huh. And, like, made this big push to adapt the series in the late 70s. I think he was thinking of a TV show, make it a TV show somehow, but with that strong musical element. Apparently this fell through, there was some work on a pilot, but it wasn't taken to series, and possibly it's because it was deemed that there wasn't enough international interest in the series at that point. Andrew Lloyd Webber went ahead and recycled a lot of his concepts in one of his earlier musicals called Starlight Express that came out in 1984. He actually named his theatrical company The Really Useful Group. (laughs) because he wanted to make this Thomas musical so badly. And a catchphrase in the Thomas franchise is a really useful engine. It gets said like 10 times in this movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Interesting. He ended up making cats around then too. So I can just imagine like people dressed up in skin tight train suits dancing around on stage.
0: Yeah, so I didn't know this, but apparently Starlight Express is about roller skating, people standing in for trains like they're playing trains wow okay and they got like disco music
1: man i gotta look that up did that ever get adapted
0: (laughs) but then Britt allcroft the writer and director of this film that we're talking about today purchased the railway rights and ultimately created the show thomas and friends which debuted in 1984 and so if you're familiar with Thomas, you probably recognize this. It's got that animation, quote unquote, achieved with model train sets. You know, the faces on the front stay still, but they can kind of move their eyes and mouths a little bit, m- maybe via like remote control. It's kind of Emmett Ottery, a little bit. Not, mm-hmm. not nearly as much soul, but in the sense that they've got these like diorama sets right. that they're working on at a small scale. With remote control puppetry. The Thomas stories on the show were told and the characters voiced by narrator Ringo Starr from The Beatles. Wow. He was the original Mr. Conductor. Is there anything he can't do? <laughs> Five years later, it was repackaged for American audiences as Shining Time Station on PBS, which is how I encountered it. And Shining Time adds a frame story where you've got events taking place in a train station managed by a lady named Stacy, who is assisted by an engineer who drives the train. After season one, George Carlin, famous foul-mouthed comic, replaced Ringo Starr as Mr. Conductor. And a Native American character named Billy Two Feathers came on as the engineer. And in an episode, a group of children would visit the train station and they would hear a story from Mr. Conductor. So George Carlin would, like, emerge out of a painting on the wall as a little leprechaun man (laughs) and introduce the Thomas sequences. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this presentation is a little bit like something like Power Rangers, where you have these pre-existing stylized sequences produced in another country, and then we bring them to America and kind of lump them together and pad them with American
1: sitcom conventions. Thomas the Tank Engine and Power Rangers. I'm trying to think if there are any other connecting tissue there. I guess it kind of is, though. What... The way you're describing it made me think of um, Mr. Rogers, too, Mm -hmm. where he has that bit where he kind of welcomes you to his house. That's almost like the framing story. And then he takes you to the neighborhood and then you're at the neighborhood and there is like all there's like little stuff going on there, too. For sure. There was another PBS
0: show called Naughty. that was a little later than this. N-O-D-D-Y. And it was about these little gnomes. And I don't know if that was British to begin with or Scandinavian or something, but it did this exact same thing where it was like kids come to a location and there's like a story, a frame story, but then they put on these gnome sequences where it's like claymation. Interesting. So so I don't know. That seemed to be the, the default construct that they would fall back on to reuse these things made in other countries.
1: It's not quite bulk and skull. Yeah, my main takeaway is I would definitely watch a Power Rangers Thomas the Tank Engine crossover.
0: <laughs> Man, I want to hear what the soundtrack for that sounds like. <laughs> I bet it would be badass. I want to put on some of those tunes, like electric guitar and like jazz flute. Right. Like, yeah, merging together. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things we didn't get carried over from Shining Time into this movie. There was another human character named Schemer, who was the recurring antagonist character. And he was like a bumbling con man who ran the arcade. And he had one of those like coin dispenser spring loaded things on his hip to like put out quarters. Okay. And he was very Saul Goodman. He wore the same loud suits and had the same comb over hairstyle.
1: Schemer walked so Saul Goodman could run. (laughs) Breaking Bad being brought in once again. Of course. The other
0: thing that I remember from Shining Time Station was there was something called the Jukebox Band, which was this group of puppets that lived inside the jukebox at the station. And every episode they would sing like a couple songs. And each of the different puppets in the group like embodied a different music genre. So there was like a Latino lounge singer Lothario character, and there was like a cowboy who did the country western, and there was like a a girl with a beehive hairdo for like, I don't know, 60s pop or something. We see the jukebox in this movie, but we never cut inside and see the creepy puppets.
1: That makes me think of uh, Trolls 2. Not Troll 2, Trolls World Tour in the DreamWorks series. Have you seen either of those movies, Brian? I saw the trailer,
0: so I think I get what you're getting at, where it's like the nation is splintered into genres or something.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's the premise of the second one. It's it's Bananas. I recommend it.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, another film that is Bananas is Thomas and the Magic Railroad, which I think we're finally ready to talk about here. And in its way, this film seems to attempt to kind of bridge the two worlds of the original British Thomas series and the American Shining Time in a way that doesn't always gel. In fact, maybe it pretty much never gels. And people on both sides of the pond are just left very confused.
1: Yeah, baffled.
0: I did read it was shot largely on the Isle of Man. Oh, I like that. Which is kind of interesting. Thomas's home turf.
1: Yeah, making it authentic.
0: So Shining Time Station, the American version, concluded its run in 1995. I guess they did one more season called Mr. Conductor's Thomas Tales that retained George Carlin in 1996. And then Britt Allcroft got working on this movie, which would hit theaters in 2000. Alec Baldwin replaces George Carlin as Mr. Conductor for the film. I guess he's got more star power clout. And yet they bring in other human characters from Shining Time Station who like, what else has Dee Dee Cone done, or the Billy Two Feathers actor? I don't know.
1: That is interesting. Dee Cone is is from Greece. She plays Frenchie in Greece. Okay. That's the only other thing I know her from. Okay. I was like, oh, it's it's Frenchie. There she is. But even so, I mean, George Carlin
0: was a known presence. Like, he was a celebrity. I guess he's not a leading man, necessarily, but... Yeah, I don't know. Now they got Alec Baldwin in this big
1: blue uniform. So, wait, was Dee Dee Cohn in the original cast, and so she, she carried over, or was she a new casting for the movie? She
0: was the main person in Shining Time Station. Yeah, she was the the manager of the station. Gotcha. But the explanation for why it's Alec Baldwin now, they talk about there being a whole family, like a whole race of these little conductor men <laughs> who can pop in and out of the worlds. And I wondered, Dan, where does Hardin Minor fit into this universe?
1: <laughs> he's he's the, the creepy one who's been expelled. <laughs> He can't wear the uniform anymore.
0: Uh, For any newcomers, that's the tiny man, like, imp narrator of It's Potty Time.
1: The goblin who watches little boys go pee. (laughs) In It's Potty Time. It's a little more innocuous than that, but only a little more innocuous.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so the story of this film, as best as I'm going to be able to explain it, It follows kind of two protagonists, maybe three. Hard to say who the protagonist of this film is, Uh, but we spend a lot of time with Alec Baldwin as Mr. Conductor and also Peter Fonda as this old recluse former engineer named Burnett Stone, which credit where credit is due, Burnett Stone is kind of a cool character name. I like that name. Uh, But both of these characters are connected to something called the Magic Railroad. And as we're going to learn, the Magic Railroad facilitates travel between our world and the Isle of Sodor. So I don't think we'd ever made this official before. Obviously, Mr. Conductor pops back and forth with his sparkle effect transition. And frankly, I'm willing to accept that. (laughs) That's enough of an explanation for me, is he can pop because he has the magic sparkles. We don't need some whole (laughs) interdimensional transportation route. But that's the magic
1: railroad of the title. That's what we're spending time with here today. So I was thrown for a little bit of a loop here right here from the start. And I would not recover from said loop throwing throughout the rest of the film. But I, I couldn't tell how much of this was like just weird world building for the sake of the movie and how much of it was like we were supposed to know from having watched the show. Like, is the conductor the only one who goes between worlds in the TV show? Or is you're, you're saying this concept of a magic railroad was not a major focus of the TV show?
0: I can say that with 90% confidence. Okay. <laughs> Other things... I mean, it's been a long time since I saw this show, so I was in a similar boat Was was like, did we know
1: this? I'm not <laughs> sure. It made me uh, more appreciate the Sesame Street specials, because those ones, you don't have to know Sesame Street to hop into any of those. Or like um, Recess Schools Out. I've never seen the Recess show, but I absolutely love Recess Schools Out. It is possible to make a feature that's a spin-off of a kid's property that like, You don't need to be a weirdo obsessive to appreciate the movie.
0: Excellent point. What I do remember about the Shining Time TV show is that... So Mr. Conductor would pop in and out, and he knew about what was going on on the Isle of Sodor, but I don't believe we ever saw human George Carlin on the island. Whenever it would show human characters, they would always just be like little
1: static lego people
0: i see like like just solid plastic people who stand there and they say something to thomas
1: that rings a bell i can visualize that now that
0: you say that but here in this movie for the first time we've got real people green screened into sodor so it's like a feature-length gauntlet episode only (laughs) a little bit more sophisticated than that But for what it's worth, I kind of like that it retained the model terrain effects. You know, they're not reinventing the wheel from the TV
1: show to the movie. I I find them really endearing. I think they're pretty good. And they're usually associated with some sort of, what was the word you used? Mural-like? I forget the phrase. Diorama-like. That's the one. That's what you said. Where it's like this kind of lovely little composition of nature that I assume is mostly fake, like little mini trees and stuff. But it looks nice. And they can like have cool shots of... bridge and here's the water and here's the trees and I think trains are just kind of cinematic. It's cool to watch even model trains zipping across the mise-en-scene. Yeah, I honestly like it. And they even do like little
0: mini phantom ride shots. Like there's a couple where they got the camera mounted like on one of the model trains looking ahead. It's cool. Mm. But the effectiveness of grafting in the humans varies from shot to shot. So pretty early on in the film, we learn that Burnett Stone's whole deal is that he was previously the engineer of a red train called Lady. And he has spent decades tinkering in a cave trying to restore this train. There's a lot more to Lady, I guess, although we don't really see it or understand it. But his whole goal is get this train working again. So that's, that's easy enough to... Grok, to comprehend. And so he's he's a hermit in this, like, cave workshop. 90s child star Mara Wilson plays his granddaughter, Lily, and she travels to Shining Time to visit her grandfather. Although, I guess he he doesn't live in Shining Time, he lives on the far side of Muffle Mountain, which is near to Shining Time but it's like one train stop away.
1: I was so confused. There's like multiple locations. So there's there's multiple real world locations. And then there's the obviously the magic train world. And okay, I, I guess I just didn't know when we were where. It's because there's also the people, at least one guy, I guess it's just the conductor that hops between them. And I just was totally lost. And like when we were, because there's a city where Barr Wilson starts out. And then she goes somewhere else. And I was like, "Okay, is this where the trains are? But no, because we're out there. We're in the real world. But that connects to where the real trains are, because that's Shining Station. And I mean, maybe it was obvious and I'm just an idiot, but I was totally lost. No, I think it was
0: a problem making Shining Time a different location from where the grandfather lived. Like, OK, just call them both Shining Time. In fact, don't even show the city that Mara Wilson is from. Just have her arrive. Maybe she could say she's from
1: there, but we don't need a whole like New York scene. Yeah. What else had you seen Mara Wilson in, Dan? So I know she's famous. I think it's Matilda that she starred in.
0: Right. That was her big one. The Danny DeVito directed Matilda movie. Before that, she was the younger daughter in Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, okay. And she's also in... Another one that was like 1994. Oh, the remake of Miracle on 34th Street.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. She's like less than a year older than me. And I've always kind of liked her since I've at least become an adult and been aware of who she is. She kind of reclaimed her her status and became an advocate for mental health for actors, particularly child stars and stuff. And she's kind of cool person to follow online.
0: Yeah. So she was 13 when she did this film. And it killed her career. She gave up acting. This was her final film. Oh God, the trains haunted her. (laughs) And yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that we get some human actors from Shining Time Station showing up. When she gets to town, we see that Stacy and Billy Two Feathers are still here. Uh, No kids because they presumably grew up and moved on and would be too old for a movie six years later or whatever.
1: But no schemer. Bummer. No schemer. Schemer erasure, Dan. (laughs) I want to know what he's up to. Devastating. Okay, so now now that you've given me the whole background, it makes a little more sense. But as I was watching, I was like, why the hell is there a Native American engineer here for one scene and then gone? I was like, what is going on right now? (laughs) I had no idea who this guy was, why we were supposed to care about him. And then he was gone. We didn't see him again for the rest of the movie. So, okay. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think there is one scene where he's driving the train and either when she's going back and forth to the mountain, to the town. Um, but here's where I will say, and we'll get back to it. This movie, there was an original cut of it that Britt Allcroft did. And then it got shown to test audiences. And then they radically re-edited it. So there's like a whole bunch of cutting room floor footage that changed the movie around okay um and so there was more with billy two feathers in the extended cut oh okay which i tracked down and i watched it
1: okay so you sent me a couple of deleted scenes and i watched a couple of those and i think we're going to get to some of the the changes from that yeah hard to say if it would make it any better i it can't make it worse let's put it that way like it can't make it less coherent There's also a magic dog. Is that, what's the deal with the magic dog? Can you tell me about the magic dog? There was more with the
0: magic dog. He belongs to somebody in Shining Time Station. I don't remember which person he belonged to. He might've been, was he Burnett's dog? I don't remember. He originated in Shining Time Station. He came all the way to the big city and he like leads Mara on the
1: train But to the wrong train. Mara Wilson's an idiot. It's like, oh, I got to get on train three. Well, this magic dog is walking to this train. This must be train three. But no, it's train four. Why didn't you look at the number of the train you were trying to get on? But she still got there. I didn't know why she wanted to be on one train as opposed to another.
0: Yeah, it's like the two places aren't actually that far apart. So yeah, it was weird. It was definitely weird. And the extra explanation didn't really help, which was, (laughs) I thought, a recurring theme of these deleted scenes that they're kind of. Just saying the same thing again, which doesn't explain it better.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're just saying the same thing louder,
0: basically. Yeah. So, yeah, Peter Fonda wants to fix this train that he's got in the cave. Lily comes to visit him. Meanwhile, the conflict that Mr. Conductor is dealing with is he is having problems with his mojo. He's experiencing a gold dust shortage, which is making it hard for him to hop between worlds. He's running low in his supplies. So near the start of the movie, he hops to Sodor and then he runs out. His tank goes empty and he can't get back to Shining Time. And here is where I asked, so what? (laughs) The job that he works is conducting trains on Sodor. So he's there now so he can just do his job. It's like, why does he need to go back to Earth and tell stories to kids? Completely with you. I had
1: absolutely. I was like, why? Why do I care? We OK, you don't have gold dust. Wow. You can still be a train conductor. You don't need gold dust to be a, a train conductor, dude. Exactly. And he's in the place that he needs to be to do that. Where the trains are. Yeah, and there's like no kids in the real world at this point. I guess Mara Wilson and Patch or whatever his name is. Yeah. Yeah. And so what
0: became a recurring question. <laughs> for me in this film because the stakes are just always incomprehensible it's like if this happens one way versus the other what is going to be the fallout from that and I could never tell you straight and yeah so in Sodor finally we're meeting Thomas the Tank Engine a pretty minor presence in the
1: film to be having first billing on the poster Yeah, it's like um, the Lorax. Lorax is like the sixth most important character in his movie, but he gets the title. Same thing with Thomas here. Mm -hmm. And so Thomas pulls in. He says he's like
0: off to pick up Mr. Conductor because Mr. Conductor is due to arrive. And while Thomas is telling this to his other train friends, Diesel 10, one of these evil diesels that all the steam trains are racist against and vice versa, drives in And he gives this speech about what he wants to accomplish in the movie. And I just straight copied this from Wikipedia because I can't explain it any better. (laughs) And I quote, Thomas is talking to James when Diesel 10 arrives and announces his plan to rid Sodor of steam engines by finding and destroying Lady, the lost engine, the key to steam engines living in peace. And then he peels off again at top speed it's like wait what what did you say what did any of that mean
1: how are you going to accomplish that uh, yeah that was w- w- near the top of my list of questions is what aren't the trains trying to do the diesel trains i mean what are the diesel trains trying to accomplish i didn't even catch this bit that you're talking about okay so they're destroying lady but yeah yeah But Lady is
0: lost, Dan. No one knows where Lady is. How is Lady having any effect on anything?
1: (laughs) It's like her magic. What does
0: Lady do? She's out of commission. (laughs) She's a non-entity. What is bringing her back going to (laughs) do? What would destroying her do? (laughs) She's not doing anything now. Who knows if she did anything in the past or has the capacity to do anything in the future? These are things we need explained to be invested in this narrative. And we never really understand. There's a little towards the end. We, we do see Lady at full steam. But even then, I'm still confused.
1: I'm nodding over here. I, I'm, I'm completely with you.
0: Mr. Conductor's performance is very strange. There's like some comedic skits that he does where
1: he's like talking to a baseball bat. yeah he's a kooky presence I will say Alec Baldwin is a little more checked in than some of the other human actors notably Peter Fonda
0: yes so Peter Fonda in this movie made me wish we were still doing Spectaculars every 25 episodes because we'd be coming up on one here soon this performance it's bizarre it's bad he stares off into space a lot and talks about how I just don't understand magic anymore.
1: <laughs> just really struggling to get through a take. It's like, just just give us 30 seconds, get through this take here.
0: Yeah, and also Lily's performance is weird. It's like they couldn't decide what age she's supposed to be. Hmm. So Mara Wilson, child star, you know, Comes from a background of doing little girl roles. Thirteen at this point. And they give her like a pseudo romance plot with this tween apprentice to Burnett. Like this this kid who helps him in the train cave named
1: Patch. <laughs> what's Patch's deal? I didn't know what was g- like. What's his relationship to, to Burnett? I don't know why he started helping him. There is
0: some line that I think made it into the movie where, so Patch is a horse boy. He has this long 90s, like, Cody hair. I imagine that whatever this actor's name is, there's like a 85% chance it's Cody. (laughs) But he rides around and he says that his horse is not spooked by Burnett. So even though, like, all the other humans don't like Burnett, uh, Patch trusts him. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we get some scenes of Patch and Lily riding around on the horse. And, but at the same time, Lily is constantly talking to this little toy bluebird that she brings with her. And I don't know what the significance of the bluebird is, Dan. (laughs) I was wondering that too. It's not train related and they seem to really want us to care about this bird, but it never does anything. (laughs) And it, yeah, it just made it, confusing how old she's supposed to be
1: it was weird this script is like generated by an ai but not quite chat gpt it's like one layer below like one previous (laughs) evolution of ai it's like that level of, of coherence we do have
0: voices for the trains at this point i seem to remember that on the original tv show whoever was telling the story would voice the trains. You know, it's like Boris Karloff reading and voicing the Grinch. That kind of thing. So it would be George Carlin doing voices for Thomas and James and all of them. But here, they all have extremely British voices. Apparently, part of the revisions was they all had, like, one voice cast that started off. But then the test audience says, those sound too old for Thomas. Thomas is like... A young train. And so they recast all the train voices. I don't know. Seems like extra work. It seems like maybe the juice is not worth the squeeze.
1: Yeah. And I was also wondering if the change in the voices was like a carryover of the different versions of the TV show or something like that.
0: I think that may be part of it, too.
1: Okay.
0: You know, they. Yeah, like they wanted to make the train seem authentically British. As they were originally, but then that also kind of clashes with they got these American characters in the mix now, too. It's a weird hybrid. Right. Also, part of these revisions, there was a human antagonist named P.T. Boomer who was awkwardly excised from the film. Just they like carved around him because test audiences deemed him to be too scary. But I watched the deleted scenes. And he really doesn't add much.
1: Interesting.
0: He just kind of wanders around the human world expressing malicious intent. He wants to find the mountain and like blow it up to destroy this lost engine. But he never really takes concrete steps towards his goal. He just kind of like walks around the town. And whenever he he runs into Billy Two Feathers (laughs) or Stacy or somebody or Patch... He's like, I'm going to blow up that mountain. Just watch me. (laughs) And then he like drives away on his motorcycle. But he he does that like nine times, Dan. He never really (laughs) advances. He just, you know, he's like the the former quarterback who had his high school glory days. And he's like, someday I'm going to be back there again. But he never is. Just kind (laughs) of hangs around.
1: Maybe I'm going crazy. I watched a couple of the deleted scenes. Is there one of the deleted scenes where he said, I'm going to buy Shining Station or something like that? Do you remember that at all? Oh
0: yeah. He wants to he definitely wants to buy the mountain. Maybe he wants to buy the town too. But yeah, that's he gets an exchange then with Billy Two Feathers where the Native American is like, You can't own land. <laughs> it's like, um, well, I mean, you can, it's kind of a native American stereotype to say that you can't, um, somebody owns the building that you work at. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, the big thing that is kind of cut out that I thought from the extended version is there's a lot of time spent talking about the magic of the valley and how like there's this magical presence that makes the valley peaceful. And P.T. Boomer coming in and taking things over is going to destroy that peace and that magic.
1: P.T. Boomer sounds like a euphemism for like a really nasty dump you take in the toilet or something like that. I don't know.
0: I feel like he'd be cousins with OK Boomer.
1: (laughs) OK, P.T. Boomer.
0: But all right. The narrative that we get in the film proper. So remember, Mr. Conductor is trying to get more gold dust. Burnett is trying to fix this train in the cave. Diesel is trying to find the lost engine and destroy it because somehow that's (laughs) going to put him ahead in this steam train, diesel train race war that's going on. Mr. Conductor enlists the help of his nephew, who for some reason is named Mr. Conductor Jr., but he's not his son. He's his nephew.
1: That really confused me, especially... Later in the movie, because I for the I missed that he was a cousin at first that gets said and then they just keep calling him Junior. And then later he's like, oh, cuz how you doing? Cuz I was like, why are you calling your dad? Cuz that doesn't make any sense. Oh, okay, He's not actually he's just part of the conductor species. Right. they are like all interrelated. Yeah, they're like leprechauns. Who's the is there like a like a god patriarch? Is it like the pantheon (laughs) of uh, of Greek mythology where there's like one. Super powerful conductor in charge of the rest of the conductors.
0: <laughs> yeah, what's the hierarchy? But he enlists this nephew to help him with the gold dust investigation. But this guy is like a surfer slacker conductor and he's Scottish. And so, yeah, just harder to see them as being related because they have very different accents. But this guy is like a gold dust addict. like he just he uses up all of alec baldwin's stash he's token it yeah he like snorts it right away (laughs) but junior he jumps he jumps to the human world because i guess mr conductor says you know i think i've got some gold dust in like a vial in my apartment or something so go to the human world and see if you can get some more gold dust it's like damn i can get my hit Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he proceeds to do. But he goes there, he picks up what little reserve is left, and Junior meets Lily. And he, like, abducts her. He takes her back with him to Sodor, and then none of the humans know where she is. There's an exchange between Patch and Burnett, where Patch is like, Um, Mr. Burnett, I took your granddaughter into town, and I said I'd take care of her but she disappeared and i don't know where she is and peter fonda says that's okay <laughs> like what? <laughs> what that's not what you do yeah what adult is going to have that reaction to their their young like child disappearing even in a world where you know there's magical trains i don't think you can just assume that that's where she went It's like, you would want to know where your granddaughter is. Yeah, you're in charge of taking care of her. No, she disappeared at a train station. That's probably fine. She'll turn up. (laughs) So stuff is popping back and forth. Sodor, the human world. It's hard to keep track of. But gradually, people on both sides of the barrier start to become aware that what lets you go back and forth is this stretch of railroad that is, like, kind of invisible. You have to go through kind of a platform nine and three quarters to use it. It's like this invisible portal that stays in one place. And so once the trains and the people learn where this barrier is, they can go through it. And Diesel says he's going to go through it, but, like, he just kind of drags his wheels He's like, what is slowing you down, dude? Just go through it. But he he takes his sweet time. You know, it it really does make sense that this evil train and the evil
1: person who got cut out are like parallels. Wait, what are the, uh, they call? It, is it bumpers? Or it's like something they keep talking about. The thing that is like, be careful of the bumpers or something like that. And I guess that ends up being connected to it too.
0: I don't know, man. Right. So it's those, it's those like little spring things at the end of the track that the trains would bump against. I think the buffers.
1: Buffer. That's what it is. Yeah.
0: And, but these buffers you don't bump against. You go through it like nine and three quarters. And so eventually Thomas and Lily meet up. Finally, the big crossover event. Yeah. And Thomas takes Lily back to the human world along this Magic Railroad stretch.
1: This, yeah. This is where I was like, all right, I'm done. Now Thomas is in the real world, and, like, I don't know why. It's like cats are dogs, and north is south. Like, nothing makes any goddamn sense anymore. I'm done with Thomas and the Magic Railroad at this point. (laughs) I I didn't understand what was happening at all. Like, I thought I knew the relative geographies. Like, I was finally, like, following it a little bit. And then Thomas just poofs into the regular world, and now Mara Wilson is running around the wilderness. I don't know why. What was kind of weird to me was
0: that I assumed that the reason the conductor species was small when they came into the human world was because they came from this world of model trains, where things are smaller. Except then, when the little conductor man takes the humans with him back to Sodor, the humans are all Conductor size. They're all the size that they can fit into the trains. Right.
1: It's like a leprechaun situation.
0: Yeah, when they go back to human world, the conductors are small still, but the humans are the size we're used to. So, not really
1: consistent as far as I'm concerned. There was a magic windmill, too, that had writing on it. What's the deal with the windmill, right?
0: <laughs> Good question, Dan. Uh, but while... Thomas is leading Lily through this portal back to the human world. They find this train car full of coal that Thomas had lost earlier through the barrier. And that's like how the trains learned that this portal was there. And they're like, oh, well, I'm responsible for that coal car. So I better pick it up. And that goes with them into the human world. Meanwhile, all along, Peter Fonda has been groaning about how he can't find the right fuel source to bring the lady train to life. And Patch, or somebody, says, Hey, you know, maybe we should try the Sodor coal that just came through. And they use it, and it brings the defunct, so-called, lost engine to life. So now all of them, Thomas, Lily, The whole crew jump aboard Lady, this red train, and they go back the other way. Now they're going back to Sodor. And when they go back through the portal, Lady comes to life. And now, whereas she'd been a regular looking train the whole time, now she's got a female face on the front. And she's
1: played by Britt Allcroft. So when Thomas goes to the human world, he stays as Thomas. But when Lady, the normal train, goes to Thomas World, she turns into female Tom. She turns to Smurfette, but train. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense. But she's like the train Sona
0: of Britt Allcroft, as far as I'm concerned. This is like her chance to exist in the
1: train verse. Yeah, she put herself in there.
0: It's a single drop of estrogen in this sea of train (laughs) testosterone. Now that everybody's on the Sodor side, they can have a showdown with the villain who remained post-test screenings, this Diesel 10 who hasn't really done anything at all. He chases them around for a little while until they lead him over a bridge, and the bridge collapses, and he falls into, like, a
1: garbage scow. Why is he just called Diesel 10 when the other ones have names? It's like, I don't, like, I'm not called... People don't go around saying, "Hey." Computer programmer 13, what you doing today? I mean, maybe some of the the higher-up executives might do that, but I feel like he just, he needed some recognition.
0: Yeah, he needs more time and development. He does have an arm, though, which to have an arm in a completely appendageless world would be such a huge advantage. I mean, can you even imagine? Be
1: the only individual who has a hand. How much manipulation you can do. That's why in Put Put. He's got that little wire thing he can use to grab stuff. Do you remember that? I do. What I'm taking away here today is I got to go play the putt-putt games again.
0: (laughs) But now Diesel is vanquished, at least temporarily. Although somebody's going to have to deal with that bridge that's out now. Like, that's an important part of the infrastructure, you know. I guess they're they're just going to dump that on Sir Topham Hat when he gets back from his vacation. He's going to have to fix that bridge. But uh, here is where we address the gold dust shortage. Just here at the very last moment of the film, Dan, because apparently Lady generates gold dust somehow. Very unexplained. And it's another exposition dump that happens super fast and is just impossible to follow (laughs) because there's a conversation with the two Mr. Conductors and Lily... And they get water out of a magic wishing well, and they're like, combine the shavings from the magic railroad with the wishing well water and rub some on your bluebird. And it's like, what (laughs) the hell is going on? (laughs) But this ritual somehow results in an abundance of gold dust. And now Mr. Conductor doesn't have to worry anymore. Yeah both conductors have their like tony montana pile of it
1: exactly yeah i was gonna i was gonna do that exact reference the stoner <laughs> now and just throw his face into the pile of gold dust <laughs> and
0: now this bluebird glows rainbow and i don't know why we have to care about the bluebird i choose not to care about it anymore <laughs> also Dan, in the extended scenes, we learn that this whole thing, all of it, is a story told by grown Lily Stone, who is married to Patch. So they got married when they grew up? Yeah. And they're like telling this to their kids.
1: (laughs) Do you think? Okay. That (laughs) that's totally reframes it. It's like. Where they actually just drop an LSD and and making out under the the bridge somewhere. (laughs) We need a gritty
0: reboot that reexamines this. (laughs) It's a little bit like a Care
1: Bears movie.
0: Uh, That's exactly what I was thinking of, where it's like suddenly they're a couple at the end. Yeah, Yeah. Kim and Nicholas. OTP. (laughs) And also Junior Conductor finds work ethic at the end. He's like, wow, uncle, I really like working on the railroad. And there's a moment of like, oh, he's going to be the new Mr. Conductor on Sodor. It gives him a hat. But Alec Baldwin says, no, I have another railroad you can work on that sometimes goes along the coastline. And so you can still surf and everybody's happy. And I think Alec Baldwin literally says, and now, like all good stories, you can go home. <laughs> what does that mean?
1: Like, <laughs> that's our ending. It's like, now you can leave. It was a relief to be able to go home from watching this movie, Brian, I say.
0: Uh, Yeah, for a while, I wasn't sure I would ever get to go home again. And that's
1: Thomas and the Magic Railroad from 2000. All right, we answered some of my questions. I got a few more questions. Okay. All right, so here's one. I apologize if I've made a few too many puerile. how do you say that word? Like uh, immature jokes this time. I got one more question, though. I was getting some of the energy of uh, my octopus teacher. Is it possible that Burnett wants to have sex with the train? Is that like he's got like a romantic fetishization of this train he literally calls my lady the lady. So what's going on with this dude? <laughs> yeah.
0: And we hear him like talk about the grandmother and remember the grandmother, but it's always in these flashbacks where it's voices in his head. We don't actually see the flashbacks. And I wonder, Dan, do you think seeing flashbacks of young Burnett's relationship with the train would help
1: or would it just make things even worse? I can tell you it wouldn't hurt. Like, I mean, I don't know if there's just any further depths to plunge in terms of the coherence of this film. Maybe, but I don't know. That could have been interesting. Like, I, I do like it when they have like the the time of the prophecy and then the time of the future, and you could have made like this sort of uh, connection between the past and the present, and you need to restore the magic of the past, and that could be like a metaphor for remembering how cool trains are if you're a, a rail fan or something like that. Okay. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think that could work. Um, The biggest change, I think, from the extended cut to what we have now is I think they kept it secret that he's got this train in the cave. Like, I think that's a mystery for most of the movie. And like, it's kind of like what. Grunkle Stan is doing in Gravity Falls, where he's got the, you know, the fortress under the house, and he's like, "I don't believe in the paranormal. There's no secret train in the mountain. What are you talking about? You hear a train at midnight, Patch. You're hearing things." Mm. And then, but then the kids eventually find his train cave, and they learn about his whole mission. But up till then, he'd just been a crotchety old man. Um, so his whole kind of arc was different in the original cut, a little bit. Not that it really added too much, but, like, he was, he was mean and nasty and didn't like trains, and then, actually, they learned that he's all about trains.
1: I feel like Magic Train Cave has to be a metaphor for something. I don't know what it is, but it's gotta be. (laughs) My favorite
0: line in the deleted scenes, though, was early on, Lily is eating dinner with her grandpa and they're sitting in the house in the dining room and there's no pictures on the walls and there's just like blank spaces where pictures used to be and lily says don't you like photos grandpa and he says no (laughs) and then there's just like 10 seconds of silence it was an amazing (laughs) clip and i was hoping somebody had uploaded just that clip on its own so that I could like send it to people in my photo class and stuff but no I gotta isolate it myself yeah that's pretty funny don't you like movies Dan no no (laughs) (laughs) refuses to
1: elaborate yeah so any other burning questions Dan Oh, yeah. What's the deal with, like, the magic words, like the philosophical tenets? Like, be useful was one of them. Oh, they called it, like, the three R's. I forget what they were, but the third one was really useful. And I was like, you can't call it the three R's if you need to put really in front of it. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah,
0: it's like the mantra that the conductors live by. And uh, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I can't explain. I was thinking by the end, I was thinking of that meme with the guy from uh, the Green Mile. He says, I'm
1: tired, boss. (laughs) That's how this movie
0: makes me feel.
1: Yeah. But what it made me think of is, I don't know, I really don't like whenever there's a a kid's property where the, the theme, the takeaway is you need to find a way to be a useful member of society, who works hard and like that is your focus in life. It's like there's this book called Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know
1: if that that one was when we were a kid. It's a, it's an older one. So we might've read that when we were a kid, but I, I just don't, it's like overly capitalistic. Like you need to figure out a way to increase the prosperity of, of society. That's your goal. Little kid, go and figure out how to do that. Be useful, be useful. God damn it. And it's like, I don't know, kind of exhausting.
0: Yeah. I mean, at the same time though i feel like not to get too into politics but i feel like that could be a goal of a communist state too is like make yourself useful to the state without personal gain like capitalism it's be useful so that you can
1: have personal gain that's true yeah regardless like the 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 focus not on like enjoying childhood and following pursuits and being excited and passionate about things and it's be useful. That's what exactly it
0: is. it's um. it's like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Having a disability is fine, provided it's actually useful.
1: Yeah, it can be exploited. You, you know, actually, you're better. It's not a disability. It's a superpower. <laughs> yeah. The credits had a cover of Locomotion. It was pretty good. It was like a little closer to the uh, Grand Funk Railroad version than the original Eva Scott or whatever. I forget the name of the original... Person who performed Locomotion. But that came up on the Discord recently. We were talking about trained songs. And someone, I think it was you, Brian, dropped Locomotion. Yep. I I miss in the
0: Ur podcast days when you would begin and end episodes with song snippets. I know we'd have to worry about uh, DRM and all that, but...
1: Yeah. Getting striked from YouTube and services for using copyrighted clips. But that was fun. Right. And... Now that you mention it, there were some original
0: songs in this movie, Dan. We had things like... I was about to say that, yeah. I know how the
1: moon feels. <laughs> Definitely building on a theory that we're just like, it's a LSD acid <laughs> trip that, the, that Lily and Patch are... What do you call it? After years after you've had drugs, you still have like uh, flashback. flashbacks. Yeah. I know what the moon feels, yeah. <laughs> They were not very good songs. They were like, uh, I don't know, kids show fodder type songs, like something you'd hear on Barney the Dinosaur. Yeah.
0: Speaking of which, I was debating whether or not I was going to bring up Barney the Dinosaur. But there were two other PBS shows that I can think of that got to such hit status that they got theatrical features. And so Sesame Street has got two that I know of. They hmm. had Follow That Bird in the 80s. And then in the early 2000s, they had Elmo in Grouchland. Which okay. Someday we might got to watch Elmo in Grouchland. but and, and Barney got one. Oh, I didn't know that. And at least in Barney, there weren't any like human characters they were trying to bridge over. Um, I feel like Sesame Street is familiar enough to the mainstream that you can get away with, bring in the humans. I think here they should not have tried to carry over the humans. I enjoyed seeing them being familiar with Shining Time, but I think that just adds confusion. Just have it be about the trains. And you can have a Mr. Conductor, uh, that's fine. Other trappings as it relates to the human world, I think not
1: necessary. And I don't know if you needed to introduce a grand theory of conductors. It's like a whole <laughs> species of them no. to explain why different ones have appeared at different times. It's almost like backfilling the lore. Yeah. It's like, why have there been different conductors? Well, now, you know, it's like a ret conductor. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That That is of my questions, though. You you've been helpful. Thank you. To the extent that one is able to be helpful to this movie.
0: Yeah, so just a couple other good things, not so good things to point out, and then I think we're ready to rate. We don't- we don't need to worry too much about the depth of the nonsense, because I trust it's bottomless. Like I said, I do kind of like the model train effects. They do some creative stuff with it. I especially liked the spooky evil sets where the diesels live. They use like, fog machines and red lighting. It looked very sinister. Good use of
1: miniatures. It's a colorful movie, too. Like the trains are really bright colors. You get really pretty shots of both the miniature and the uh, actual Isle of Man landscapes. And it's it's colorful. I like spending time in color. Mm-hmm. And one scene that I
0: saw mentioned ahead of time as being particularly goofy is when Diesel 10 picks up. Mr. Conductor in his hook and is like flinging him around in the air. I thought that was funny and kind of interesting. I mean, it, maybe it didn't look great, but seeing the human manipulated in the world, I yeah,
1: I felt like we were leading to that, and I thought it worked okay. Yeah, the green screen was fine. Like, yeah, there were times I didn't. I there was a couple times I was like, well, hold on a second, is that a perspective manipulation or a green screen? Particularly when the little conductors appeared in the human world. And I think almost every time it was green screen, like post-production. But it was still pretty interesting. Didn't hate that part of it. I also
0: couldn't remember from the TV show if the adults had acknowledged Mr. Conductor before. I I was trying to remember if only the kids saw him previously. Here, the adults definitely talk at length with Mr. Conductor. So maybe maybe that happened. I don't remember. <laughs> Leave a comment in the chat if you... Remember, if the adults talk to Mr. Conductor, not so good things for me so much. I just didn't understand (laughs) the stakes. Most of all, it's like whichever direction this narrative ends up, I don't know the significance of that. It's like this train, the red one in the cave lady, as far as I can tell, isn't contributing anything. Um, in the extended cut, there's a lot more pontification on how this train generates the magic and peace of the valley. And that's kind of attached to the gold dust thing. So I, I guess you can call that like a theme. It doesn't really have significance to me. Right. It doesn't really feel earned because we don't really see what generating magic entails. Right and there's just a bumper crop of protagonists. It's like is it Mr. Conductor? Is it it's not Thomas, I'll tell you that. Um is it Burnett? Is it uh Lily? In the extended cut, I would tell you it's Lily. There's way more Lily in the extended version. Gotcha. What about you, Dan? Any any other talking points to hit?
1: Well, I think my overall sense of exasperation at the story conveyed thoroughly. I don't need to dissect it any further. But that was that was basically it for me. It's just like, yeah, I didn't know what was going on. And I kind of like to know what's going on in a movie. And (laughs) I mean, there are some movies where you don't know what's going on. And that's like done in a way that's appealing. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Mulholland Drive, one of my favorite movies. No idea what's going on for part of it. House 1977. House. Yeah, whatever. Another movie I love. If it's like a kid's movie, kid's story, it's not like an avant garde, surreal, like push the outer limits of your perception type film. Why do you have all this stuff going on? I don't know. It, it, it definitely lost me. So,
0: yeah, maybe we're just PT boomers. <laughs> we're just getting old. Yeah. How would you rank it? I guess we'll, we'll give ratings and then you can compare it to some other uh, lowlights
1: we've talked about on the franchise. I'll, I'll definitely do that as I consider what my rating's going to be here in a minute. Um, I guess one thing I wanted to mention I didn't yet is the, the Thomas book that I mentioned that me and my wife has, have as an in-joke. So it's this little kid's book. It's called Go Train Go, I think. And the premise is there's a human character. So I guess it's a human character in Sodor. So she's the judge of a train contest. What's a train contest? I I don't know what a train contest is. It's presented as like a a dog show or something. Like, oh, here's your train. It gets a ribbon. But like a train, it just sits there. Like There's not really much that a train can do. Anyways, there's a train show that's going on. And the judge needs to get there, except she's going to be late for the show. So, okay, Uh, whatever She, she didn't plan well she needs to get there so she hops on a train to get to the train show and who happens to be hanging around but thomas she's like go train go get me to the train show and he like has to go through mud he's working really hard going up hills he has to like honk at some cows so the cows get out of the way zoom has to get her there on time and he gets her there just on time great okay so now like thomas is hanging out there with the other Trains and she gets off and she says, all right, the winner of the train show is that train over there. And she points at Thomas, who like, I guess was in the train show because he showed up. But he he was not there when it was supposed to be starting and he drove her there. But also this is like a conflict of interest, major conflict of interest. It's not judged based on his merit. It's because he helped her get a ride. Yeah, it's not it's not impartial. Yeah, so. Like whenever we talk about, I don't know, like some sort of contest or like prize, especially when we're like doing something with the girls and like some sort of joke thing. Now, is this an is this a real winner, a real great thing? Or is it a go train go situation (laughs) where there's strings being pulled to get to get uh, someone favored? Yeah, it's rigged. Yeah, that's funny. But shall I talk us into is it good? Okay. So is it good as our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess I'll go first. Is Thomas and the Magic Railroad good? So <laughs> um, I I like to find the good in things. And there are things to like here. There's I like the miniatures. It's a cool. Look, I like the bright colors. I like some of the settings, I don't mind some of the actors. Alec Baldwin does a good job. And, you know, there's some very loose and hazy Britishy charm to it. It doesn't really convey, it's, it's, as you talked about, it's sort of got like a mishmash of roots. So I was thinking about it like, all right, if I'm going to rate this, let me compare it to other things. Would I rather watch this again as opposed to All right, let's start at the bottom of the scale. Would I rather watch this or after last season? I'd definitely rather watch this. This is better than than after last season. All right. Would I rather watch this or Max Magician? Ooh, that's a tough one. They're pretty much neck and neck. I think I got to go with Max Magician, though. Like, I don't check out quite so hard on Max Magician.
0: Yeah. Okay. so we're in a similar place because that's Max Magician is the one I was going to bring up, too. And my thoughts on this versus Max Magician. So Max Magician, smaller budget, you know, less production experience among the crew and cast. Um, And for that, I give it some extra credit. I, I boost it some for that the biggest boost that Max Magician gets is I could follow the story <laughs> as goofy as it was. I could understand that Dagda was the bad guy. Max was the protagonist. You know, I can still like name the characters. Um, right. And I was never as lost as I was consistently in this movie.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, well, I don't know. What about final flesh, which I gave it two, to, uh, neck and neck. Probably that one at least made me laugh. So I'd go with Final Flesh on that. Yeah. Easier to watch this one with your kids. That's true. (laughs) If I were sitting with my kids, this is the one I would rather watch. (laughs) So, okay. What it came down to is uh, this is for me, it's a very not good movie. I'm giving this a one out of eight. It was just utterly incomprehensible to me. Brian, there's this clip of uh, Joe Pesci looking at a weird looking house. And he says in a perfect Joe Pesci voice, what the fuck is this piece of shit? And that's kind of how I felt every five minutes when I was watching Thomas and the magic railroad. It's like, what is, what is, what am I doing right now? Like, well, how has my life led me to a scenario where this is the thing that I'm doing is watching this movie right now. And, you know, in some regards, I'm laughing about it, but for me, It doesn't have any of the appeal of other bad good or, like, graded on a curve because it's a kid's movie. It's just nonsense. It's a one out of eight for me, Brian. Yeah. So,
0: for me, the last few episodes I've been grappling, I'm kind of in a rating rut where I feel like if I like it, oh, that's a six. You know, that's a very good movie because I liked it. You know, is it a milestone in great filmmaking? Maybe not. Six. If I don't like it, oh, that's a one. It sucks. It's terrible. Give it a one. But you're right. I, I can't disagree with you, Dan. I like it more than After Last Season, but not as much as Max Magician. And I give Max Magician a one. Uh, I I think Max Magician now is like my very highest watermark of what a one can be before it crosses over into two. So, yes, very not good for Thomas and the Magic Railroad because it's just so confusing what a baffling film (laughs) there's a gag where i guess it's a gag i didn't laugh (laughs) but mr conductor is just he like wakes up from a dream or something and he's just saying words and it goes on for like two minutes and some of them have significance he's like buffers grass windmill and it just goes on and on it's it felt to me like some of the non
1: sequiturs that we got in george of the jungle 2 yeah no that's a good point that that does make you think that there's like a whole prophecy at hand and i was wondering like what i don't know it didn't make sense you're right but
0: i did feel very happy that i brought this one to our attention because i thought it was a great pick dan for train month it's an extremely
1: trainy film Absolutely. Everything revolves around a train. There's the guy in love with the lady train. There's the whole train alternate universe. She takes a train to get to the train station. The train station is itself the center of, of it. Very much a train film. And so, Dan, what is our next stop going to be? Do we keep rolling with train month? I think we do. That's been our precedent thus far as we do five selections or at least five episodes in a theme month. So I've been preparing as if we we're going to have one more. Excellent. that This will wrap up train month. And um, I had a lot of train movies and we can talk about some of our, I assume we both have at least decent sized lists of things that we thought about for this month. Yeah. Our honorable mention, our train month short list. I certainly do. Yeah. So I had a short list and I was leaning one way and then I was leaning another way There's some good Alfred Hitchcock ones that I'm not going to end up picking. I felt like he's got some good train movies. It would have been really good if I got a Hitchcock in there. Not going to happen. There's only so much time in the theme month. Could still pick one someday, I suppose. So I was kind of on the fence between a few. And then I happened to be reading a Reddit thread where it was one of the film related subreddits. I don't know. And they said, what's your favorite DVD release that has a director's commentary? I was like, oh, this is right up my alley. I love reading about director's commentaries. And the top voted one is Kino Lorber did a Blu-ray release of the 1964 film called The Train that has two really entertaining and insightful commentaries, one by the director, one by someone else. And he said one of his favorite movies ever and also one of his favorite DVD commentaries ever. So I had to track down where I could find this Blu-ray my one concern is I don't know if the Blu-ray is going to come in in time for me to watch the commentaries, but I'm still going to pick the film The Train from 1964. And I was like, what What better way to go out on Train Month than watching a movie literally called The Train? It's like The Circus from Circus Month. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. The Train, a 1964 film directed by John Frankenheimer, starring Burt Lancaster.
0: Do we know, Dan, is there actually a train in the film, though? Yes. What if that's just
1: a complete mislead so it could be one of those ones where the train is like not actually all that important that would be disappointing but i know it revolves around a train that like transports contraband or something weird like that so that's at least an element of it okay great and the poster has a train on it so i figured that'll at least suggest some train action well that's
0: what we aim to provide listeners is train action so please join us again in yet another installment of Train Month here on The Goods. Thank you for listening. Thank you,
1: Brian.